0: Is an Odyssey original.
1: This is KDX in depth. I'm Rob Barch. I'm Charles Feldman,
2: California, and New York. Going after the NFL. We'll go in depth.
1: AI could soon get in the middle of you, your doctor, and your insurance company. Also, so many people are experiencing a certain condition that the Surgeon General now says it's a public health danger. Do you have any idea now?
2: How many different people get in the way between a doctor and the patient?
1: Way too many. First too of all, many. There's, there's a crew of lawyers for insurance companies. Yeah. Right. And then there's the insurance companies. So right. it's just endless. But we start
2: with the investigations into the NFL over workplace discrimination. With us is Sandy Rappaport, employment attorney based in the Bay Area. Sandy, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So give us a, a, the sort of bullet points about what uh, you believe this investigation is about.
3: Well, uh, it, it appears that that the both the attorney generals of New York and California have decided together to look into the NFL's workplace practices, workplace culture. Both states have sent subpoenas out to the league to uh, obtain information about whether they're following federal and state uh, anti-discrimination laws, pay equity laws, and that sort of thing.
1: So is this a case of a culture that the investigators are wanting to go after because the culture has been kind of ingrained in the NFL for a long time, even though they have made uh, some strides in kind of correcting this culture, as have a lot of businesses? Is that is that what's going on here, just the overall toxic atmosphere?
3: Well, that's they, they cited in their press release this, uh, this report, but done by the New York Times in February of last year, where 30 former female employees of the NFL had complained of gender discrimination and retaliation. Uh, th- there was a lawsuit filed last month in Los Angeles for by, by a woman claiming age and gender discrimination. There was a lawsuit filed in uh, New Jersey in March by a a woman uh, who worked for the Human Resources Department of the NFL, who claims that she had been treated poorly because of her race and because of her gender. And so the attorneys general, the attorney generals uh, appear to be looking at all of this activity and deciding to look into it further.
2: What sort of track record is there, Sandy, for these kinds of investigations into uh, all sorts of discrimination, alleged discrimination uh, in different kinds of employment? Do they tend to be successful? Do lawsuits that come from investigations tend to be successful?
3: Well, interestingly, the attorney general doesn't generally prosecute uh claims of discrimination, those are usually handled under the, in California, there's the California Civil Rights Department, which used to be called the Department of Fair Employment and Housing. And that's the agency that typically will enforce the laws that protect workers from unlawful discrimination. Employees will bring complaints before the Civil Rights Department and or sue themselves uh, for violations of the anti-discrimination laws. The California Attorney General doesn't usually get involved with those lawsuits, but what the Attorney General does often is partner with the the Civil Rights Department to challenge things like federal laws that impede California from enforcing its own civil rights laws. At, at, At the same time, though, what the Attorney General will do is issue investigative subpoenas when they're questioning whether. California employers are complying with, with laws. A couple of years ago, there was a, there, there was an attempt to subpoena Amazon during the COVID lockdowns to make sure that Amazon, you know, what were their practices uh, with respect to their employees uh, under with during the COVID situation. And so it definitely happens that they will they will investigate they will they will subpoena but the enforcement and the you know the the lawsuits will really be driven by the employees themselves or by the civil rights department
1: all right thank you so much uh, sandy Rappaport, employment attorney based in the bay area by the way a spokesperson for the NFL uh, says in a statement the allegations are quote entirely inconsistent with the NFL's values and practices he says the uh, league has a culture where employees of all genders races and backgrounds thrive
2: the former leader of the Proud Boys and three other members of the far-right group have been convicted of seditious conspiracy in connection with that January 6th insurrection. Rachel Fezzet is a defense attorney and legal analyst. Rachel, thanks for being back with us.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
2: So it isn't every day that one hears about anybody in this country being convicted of seditious conspiracy. What does that mean? Yes, sedition is not
4: overly used these days. It's a very old crime because it's not, it doesn't happen so much anymore, except it's been unearthed for the proud boys. And it means to destroy by force um, some sort of government or legitimate act by the state. And here they're trying, they were convicted of conspiring against the legitimacy of the state. It's a civil war era type of crime.
1: There are continuing investigations into former President Donald Trump and his involvement in the January 6th insurrection, what role he played in that. Uh, will these uh, convictions play into that investigation?
4: Oh, I absolutely think it will. Now that we have these convictions um, of, for conspiring against the legitimacy of the state and even lesser charges that they were also. Uh, convicted on, which is conspiring to obstruct the official proceeding, which was the the congressional certification of the election, they take any link with Donald Trump's actions there in his role in these crimes, and, and they have the facts to show um, that the Proud Boys were doing it, so now they just are linking Donald Trump to those actions. And, yes, the convictions absolutely are a blow to his defense of Uh, those actions.
5: Rachel,
2: I'm curious because you were saying that this really kind of goes back seditious conspiracy to the U.S. Civil War. And I would imagine in those days if you were convicted of seditious conspiracy, what, were you hanged or shot or something? What's the punishment now?
4: Well, the punishment now is they face up to 50 years in prison. So they haven't been sentenced yet, but it's a very serious crime. Think of it as one tiny little notch below treason.
1: And how does this factor into uh, what some complained by saying maybe not seditious conspiracy, but they should have been charged with some form of domestic terrorism?
4: I think that seditious conspiracy, along with the official proceeding obstruction, really gets them to the point where it was an action that was uh, absolutely planned, accounted for, and it was multiple parties. What's interesting about the Proud Boys is not all of them were present for the actions. So, with, in a domestic terrorism or something like that, it's more likely that they would need to show that they were present or, or part of the violence. And in the in these convictions, not all of the defendants were part of the violent acts on January sixth. They were not all present, but they were there in the in the behind the scenes conspiring for those actions to happen. And that's why you're getting the charges that you got. And the convictions show that despite them not being there, that the jury found that they were so active in the the attempt to overthrow the government that day that that led to these charges and these convictions.
2: Rachel, you're a defense attorney. If you had to file an appeal for these people, what would you do?
4: Well, there were a lot of parts of this trial that I think they may appeal, one being that they weren't there, one being that they let in evidence of other Proud Boy actions showing their violent tendencies, and that could taint the jury. So I think I would appeal the little rulings along the way that showed the Proud Boys' actions, even if not on that day.
1: Uh, Very quickly, there are some people on the fringe who are embracing the Proud Boys uh, today, speaking out in defense of them. Is that a danger in mainstream politics? Is that going to really alienate more people in the middle who might be uh, convinced to swing one way or the other in the next election?
4: to say. The Proud Boys have been growing stronger with you, throughout Trump's presidency and, uh, you know, there is always this fringe. So uh, it's hard to say that this particular conviction will do any harm to to that fringe group. It may, in fact, make it larger.
1: Alright, thank you so much. Uh, talking about the uh, Proud Boys and the seditious conspiracy uh, convictions, and that was Rachel Fizea, a defense attorney and a legal analyst.
2: Well, we already know that, that, unfortunately, a lot of kids uh, have gotten a lot worse in, in math skills in reading skills. And now it turns out they're also not doing so well in history. When we come back, if we remember, we'll talk about it.
1: There are some new data that shows that eighth graders across the country are struggling more than they did in the past when it comes to American history and civics. James Grossman, executive director of the American Historical Association. He has taught at the University of Chicago and also uh, UC San Diego. Thanks for joining us.
5: Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me.
1: So why is this happening? Why are scores going down for eighth graders in history and civics?
5: Well, I think there's primarily three reasons, but there's probably a lot of reasons. So one of them is uh, if you look carefully at this report, uh, you'll also note that the scores have been going down in other disciplines as well. And those of you uh, in your audience who have gray hair like me will remember Sam Cooke, don't know much about history. Uh, But then after he said don't know much about history, he said don't know much about geography, don't know much about the math I took, et cetera, et cetera. So so first of all, there is COVID, which has made it very difficult for teachers to teach and kids to learn. So I think that's the first thing is that uh, the the scores have gone down on everything the second is uh, we haven't invested much in history education and when you don't invest you don't earn you don't get dividends if you don't invest Uh, we know that from the private sector and we have not been paying our teachers california pays its teachers well but the rest of the country most of the rest of the country doesn't Uh, we have not invested in public education again california has done better than a lot of other states Uh, So that's part of it as well. Uh, We don't invest in professional development for social studies teachers. Uh, Imagine going to a doctor or a dentist who hasn't been doing the required professional development, doesn't read their professional journals. Uh, Lord knows what kind of treatments you would get.
2: So let me ask you this. You know, the old uh, axiom about those who don't remember history are doomed to uh, uh, repeat it or or words to that effect. Um, So is that what's going to happen now? Are all these eighth graders going to become ninth graders and 10th graders and college students but not really know anything about history and all the other subjects that you just ticked off earlier and then unleash upon the world what?
5: Well, it's entirely possible. Uh, And Lord knows what they would unleash upon the world if they haven't learned anything about the past. And I think you can give an easy example for that, which gets you to my third reason. My third reason here is interference. You've got parents calling teachers at night. Uh, You've got school boards interfering with what social studies teachers are trying to do in the classroom. Uh, Again, not in California, but you've got state legislators telling teachers, you can say this, you can't say that, you can't talk about racism, you can only talk about slavery in this way or that way. Uh, You've got school districts in California who have done this. In Orange County, there's one school district that uh, that has done this. Uh, So you've got teachers literally wondering, what am I allowed to say? What am I allowed to teach? And the reason I'm worried about that in answer to your question is, Nobody who uh, has half a brain or can watch TV or read the internet, uh, nobody disagrees that our society is divided. Clearly, our society is divided right now. We have conflict. We have polarization. If you don't know what causes a disease, you can't heal it. And so what we're going to have is a generation of people who in many states are not being allowed to be taught about these conflicts that we have, uh, about the history of racism. If you don't understand why we are racially divided, how are you going to solve that problem? So you're absolutely right. And not just the
1: history, uh, as you mentioned, but also the civics and how how we can maintain ourselves in an orderly uh, society and how we can learn to get along and and how we vote and how we take out our differences at the ballot box. Uh, That's also going to be a huge issue that I think we're already seeing the effects of of people saying if they don't like the outcome of this election, well, we'll we'll just overturn it.
5: Well, or we will pretend it never happened. Right. I mean, that's exactly right. The, one of the things that historians have argued is that the crucial election in the United States was the election uh, was after George Washington and after John Adams uh, was the election in, 18, in 1796 and in 1800, uh, but especially the election in 1800 when the party of the current president, John Adams, was voted out of office when, John, when, when Thomas Jefferson won. And they handed over the reins of government peacefully. This was not something in 1800 that people did very often, to hand over the reins of government to their opponents peacefully. And this has been something that this is one. If you look at the rest of the world, Mm -hmm. you look at these places where when someone sees that an election is going to get lost, uh, they stage a coup. They cancel the elections. We see this all across the world. One of the reasons our democracy has lasted is that we accept the results of our elections.
1: We are going to have to leave it there, but thank you very much. Thank you. James Grossman, executive director of the American Historical Association. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer, I'm Charles Felton. Well, we've been talking a lot about AI. Everybody's talking a lot about AI. And the other day, right here on the show, we talked about how AI might be able to predict heart attacks.
2: Yeah, well, AI's place in the healthcare world raises a lot of really interesting and troubling questions. So here to perhaps help answer those, we've got Dr. Art Kaplan, founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's School of Medicine, And Paul Siegert, who's managing partner at PCS Advisors, that's a health benefits consulting firm. Gentlemen, thanks you, thank you both for being with us. Thank Thank you. you. So let's start off for the for the uh, the premise of this discussion, and I'll start with you, uh, Doctor. Let's start off with the premise, and I know I'm going to get emails from insurance companies, which I won't read, uh, that are going to say, "No, this isn't true." But let's. Start with the premise that insurance companies are going to go out of their way to not pay out a claim because that's kind of their business model is to try to not pay out a claim, if at all possible. If we accept that premise and in a not too distant world, we have a conflict between what a doctor wants and what an A.I. system at a hospital, a clinic, you have, you name it, says you should uh, you need. And one is cheaper than the other. Who's going to win that argument? doctor?
6: Well, I'll jump, and I'm sure Paul has a view too, but unless that AI program has a license to practice medicine, and I mean that literally, that we start licensing the program, the doc's going to win. So for the time being, robot doctor is going to have to be an adjunct to real doctor or human doctor. Could that change way down the road if robot doctor gets good enough to sort of pass the medical board and uh, get licensed, yes.
2: Yeah, but suppose I get what you're saying. But suppose real doctor says uh, you should have this particular treatment, and then the insurance company plugs it into AI, and AI in a split second scans <laughs> millions and millions of, of of medical journals, something that that your real doctor couldn't possibly do in a lifetime, and the right. AI and the AI says no, that treatment really isn't needed. The insurance company is going to do a lot now.
6: Yeah, one quick comment. The insurance company does that now, by the way. The doctor says Uh And they send it off to a review panel or somebody (laughs) in an office out in Oakland somewhere. And they look at it and say, nope, nope, you don't need that. We're going to do this. So that's not new. It it happens human to human right now. I think that's precisely why, though, we need some standards set about things like reimbursement and by the way malpractice if robot doctor is wrong who are we exactly suing
1: i uh, you know and and paul this is great uh, chance for me to jump in here because that was going to be my next question, uh, because Charles uh, kind of made the insurance company the bad guy, so I'm going to make the hospital the bad guy in this hypothetical case and say that uh, an AI comes up with a diagnosis and the doctor disagrees with it, but they, they for whatever reason, take the AI's uh, diagnosis and they go with that treatment, and it turns out to not work. The patient suffers as a result. The survivors or the patient sues the hospital for malpractice, and the hospital... Would have at some point, maybe down the road, the opportunity to say you can't sue us. You got to sue the maker of the AI who made that uh, diagnosis. Is is that something that's going to happen? And and how far away is that?
0: Oh, I, I think it will. And to add a little color to the prior question, not only are we doing it now in terms of denying claims, but uh, Cigna, as an example, one doctor at Cigna somehow is able to deny. 30,000, some as many as 60,000 claims in a single month because they're already using algorithms to determine how many they, what claims to pay, what claims to not pay. If you look at the average time they spend on a claim that they deny, it's about 1.2 seconds. So they're definitely already in a gray area of complying with the rules that Dr. Kaplan was referring to, where they have to have a licensed medical. Doctor review the claim to make the denial there we're already very far into the gray uh in that area when you can have thirty to sixty thousand denials by one practitioner certainly so i think
2: so dr ahead. kaplan to to take what Paul just said then uh would that be the way it perhaps would work that the AI would go through maybe a lot more than thirty thousand claims in a month, maybe they can do, they can do it in a day but you just have a pro forma signature by a licensed doc who goes, yep, 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 yep. Another couple of yep, 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 yep. Yeah. Is that what's yeah, going
6: it, to happen? It it, it it will happen if we don't step in and start to say there is going to be a check or a balance or an appeals process, but it requires more right. than just some routine rubber stamp. And that is part of the need that we've got now with the emergence of A.I. into payment schemes.
1: All right, a uh, question for both of you, and very quickly here as we run out of time, uh, should there at some point be a law passed that would tell, uh, give a patient the right to say, if I'm going into this hospital, I do not want A.I. to be involved in my treatment, only human doctors.
6: Well, I think you have a right to know if you're going to get treated by robot doctor. Are you going to be able to say no AI in my care? I doubt it because the hospital is going to be infused with AI. I don't think you're going to get that far. All
1: right. Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, Paul Siegert, managing partner at PCS Advisors. Also, Dr. Art Kaplan, founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine. And Charles, this is why. I keep saying I, for one, would like to welcome our robot overlords because when, <laughs> I, go be in, when I go into the hospital, yeah. those AI doctors, robot doctors are going to be taking care of me. I want them to know, hey, I was on your side. No,
2: no, no, no. After, after this segment, Rob, yeah. neither <laughs> one of us is going to be ever treated in a hospital or have an insurance claim. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> we're, we're done, you know. Uh, and by the way, uh, KNX, we will be hosting a town hall Focusing on AI and its role in society, that will be May the 18th at 4 p.m. live. And if you want to attend, we have tickets. Yeah, we do. We have actual tickets. Email us at townhall at knxnews.com. That's townhall at knxnews.com. And when we come back, there is a new epidemic sweeping America. And no, you do not have to wear a mask for it. I feel like there should be violins here now. Yes. Are you feeling lonely? If you are, if you are, it's serious. This is very serious. It is serious. Because if you are, you're actually not alone in that feeling. More and more people are suffering from
1: loneliness. It is such a serious problem. The Surgeon General says this is an epidemic and as big of a health risk as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. Tessa Voss is a clinician at Betty Ford Center and Betty Ford Center Administrator. She is in uh, Palm Springs, uh, joins us now. Thank you so much for being here today.
7: Thank you for having
1: me. We uh, toyed with the idea of not having a guest on for this segment, just Charles and I sitting in the room alone uh, for a while and talking about how lonely we felt. But this is a serious problem. We, we kid about it, but uh, but it is something that affects a lot of people. And I think we've all been at those places in our lives where it has suddenly dawned on us that being alone can kill you as fast as anything else could. And that is literally true. And this is what the Surgeon General is looking at now, acknowledging a problem that has existed. Or is he making too much of a thing out of being lonely?
7: You know, it's it's so great to see the Surgeon General highlight really what, what he's saying is that connection is critical for health and well-being. And without it, we can really suffer both our physical health and our mental health. And so um, it is really serious. And we're, you know, this is something Hazel the Betty Ford Foundation has known for some time, that connection is healing and critical to um, to health.
2: But I can hear some people say, well, you know, I have lots of Facebook friends. I have people that I communicate with on Zoom. Is that really the same thing?
7: Sure. It, you know, The volume of people we know isn't the same as the volume of close and authentic connections that we have. And we know that to not feel lonely, we need close, uh, authentic connections with other people. And so actually technology has led to more disconnect and more isolation, even though we might have hundreds or thousands of Facebook friends. And so it's, it's kind of an illusion, but it's something that our society is now encountering and, and needs to um, contend with and make a pathway forward to, to reconnect.
1: Is there also a problem for people who are experiencing severe loneliness that they feel unable to reach out to reach out to someone else, to reach out to a friend, to reach out for uh, professional help because of. The cultural divisions that we have now, people are uh, politics gets wrapped up in everything. Could that also be a part of people being afraid to reach out and connect with other people? Because they might have a different political view than I do, and we cannot communicate.
7: Right. Well, there's a few self-defeating cycles like that. you know. So if we already feel lonely and isolated and that people don't want to be around us or connect with us, we might be less inclined to be reaching out um, to initiate that connection due to fear of rejection, Um, and not getting those connection needs met. So that is one part. And then, of course, there are different, um, you know, divisive uh, things going on right now in our communities that also furthers disconnection. So so one of the things that the Surgeon General said was how important it is that we all can make a difference and take action today by doing little things like reaching out, sharing our struggles openly with other people, um, connecting to individuals or an individual therapist or a group. Um, and taking that time just to build authentic in-person connections can really influence our health and well-being.
2: You know, one of the things that he did say, and we mentioned that in the uh, lead-in about uh, uh, that being uh, lonely, there's the health risk uh, the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. First of all, I don't know how they came up with 15 cigarettes a day. Maybe maybe it's 20, maybe it's 10, who knows. But the suggestion that he's making is that uh, it's going to lead to death because if you have 15 cigarettes a day for life, there's a fairly good you know, chance you may get lung cancer and die. Is he right. suggesting that by being lonely, what? I mean, you're going to, what are you going to do? I mean, other than if you take your own life, why would that lead to an outcome equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day?
7: Right. Well, the way I read it and understand it is that the effects, the, the distress of isolation and loneliness can lead to these physical health consequences, similar to smoking, um, but can lead to things like diabetes, depression, anxiety, and an increase in those symptoms. And those things then you know, can, can be as serious as death um, or longer term physical and mental health struggles. And so his call to action was for all of us to really take this seriously and do things to intentionally connect um, yeah, to do things okay. to intentionally connect.
1: Uh, so, so there you go. We are uh, running out of time here. So very quickly, if someone listening to this is feeling loneliness and, and says, oh, I get it because I'm, I'm feeling that now, what's the first thing they should do? Who should they reach out to right away?
7: I would say reach out to someone you're close with, a friend or family member, or also a professional. There's many ways to find connection. Um, But professional help is also available. Find a therapist or um, a group. Uh, You know, we have resources on our website at hazeldenbettyford.org. But on the Internet, there's a lot of resources available there, too.
1: All right. Thank you so much. Tessa Voss, uh, clinician, Betty Ford Center Administrator. She's in Palm Springs talking about loneliness can be a dangerous health condition.
2: Now do you feel better?
1: I do feel a little bit better. You and do. and I have you here in the room with me. And at some point we are going to hug. <laughs> I'm leaving now, though. OK, so you're all alone. <laughs> That's it for KDX In-Depth. I'm the lonely Rob Archer, along with Charles Feldman. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.